Good morning, CBC family. It's good to see everybody. Those of you watching online, it's good to see you. Uh, in theory, <laughs> it's good to be seen. Uh, that's good. Uh, well, I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you have been with us, you know that we are in a series called Reorder, going through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and every week we've kind of done a zoom in on part of the section of the Sermon on the Mount. But today I actually want to start by zooming out a little bit, uh, looking at the Sermon on the Mount in the bigger picture of Jesus's life and ministry. So when you pull back from the story, we see Jesus continually engaging with crowds. He's living and moving among them. Uh, they are the broken, right? They are broken physically, needing healing and relief from disease and sickness. They're broken spiritually, caught in spiritual bondage, needing freedom from the oppression of dark spiritual forces. And they're broken sinfully, ashamed in their own selfish unrighteousness, or worse, in their prideful self righteousness, all broken and all needing mercy and grace and forgiveness from God. And with all these broken people like pressing in and gathering around him, how did Jesus feel about these needy people? Well, Matthew actually tells us, it says, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion. That, that word literally means to suffer with someone, with them. It's like your heart is going out to someone. And that, that is the heart of Jesus, compassion not keeping these broken crowds at arm's length, but instead reaching out with his arms embrace. So why do I want to start there today? Because let's be honest, aren't we a crowd of the broken? Physically, some of us, spiritually, sinfully. And what does Jesus think of us here in our midst? It's the same. He looks at us with compassion, with love, and mercy. He is with us in our suffering. Not at arm's length, but in his arms embrace. And specifically, I think his heart of compassion towards us today might focus on the subject of this part of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, our anxiety. We are an anxious people. All of us, to some degree or the, uh, or the other, at some point have dealt with or will deal with anxiety. We all, to some degree, worry about the future or some impending danger that's in front of us. But some of us live under the weight of constant anxiety. Life is one continual battle just to keep our heads up, to keep our hope up, and to take that one next step, but gripped by a never-relenting sense of dread about what's ahead of us. And that kind of anxiety is never alone. It's always paired with some shame, maybe a shame of being afraid. And for Christians, that shame and our anxiety can sometimes extend to a shame before God that he must be disappointed in us because we don't trust him enough. That we must have not have enough faith to make him happy. Have you ever felt that kind of anxiety? 
Well, friends, today we're going to take some deep dive into the waters of anxiety, but I want to start off today with some truth that no matter where you are in your struggles with anxiety, little or big, Jesus looks at you and me today the same way he did those crowds of broken people back then. Not ashamed of us, not disappointed with us, not condemning us in our anxiety, but with compassion and a desire to set us free from the anxiety that weighs us down. So why are we anxious? You might respond like, Mike, are you paying attention? Why aren't we anxious? Think about it. On a global scale, there are wars and atrocities, injustices, natural disasters, famines, pandemics, and more in our own country. We see such vitriol and hatred against political, racial, social, and even religious tribes fighting each other. There's inflation and rising costs of living. Have you seen eggs? <laughs> but there's true evil and violence and tragedy in every news cycle. And now, apparently, we have to worry about foreign spy balloons. <laughs> and deep down in our own personal lives, what makes us anxious? The pressures to perform, to live up to your parents or to your family or to your boss or to live up to your social media feed. The real and hard and painful health scares for us or people we love. And as parents, we look out at this broken, evil world and we are more anxious about our kids than ever before and our kids are more anxious than ever before. And on all of this, we sit in a 24 seven tsunami of information on screens that we carry around with us, bringing every tragedy, every fight, every insecurity, every reason to be anxious from every corner of the globe before our eyes endlessly. So you might say, well, Mike, I didn't struggle with anxiety before this morning. <laughs> well, I had to make the sermon applicable to some, right? But in all seriousness, were we meant to live this way in constant worry and anxiety. Now, to be fair, some worry is not bad. It's good to make sure your smoke alarms have batteries in them. It's good to have car insurance for when the accidents might happen. So worry that's rooted in wisdom and truth that promotes godly action, that's good. But the type of anxiety Jesus is going to talk about with us is not that type of worry. It's a worry rooted in believing a version of the future where in our minds, God doesn't exist. The type of anxiety that in the midst of the storms grips us and doesn't lead us to hope in God, but actually to turn away from him. It's an anxiety deep within us that Jesus, full of compassion, wants to meet with us in and free us from. So before we dive in, a couple more things. One, anxiety and mental health are deep, personal, and layered things. So please know we're not going to cover everything you'd like to in one sermon. We're going to strive to be as faithful to the passage as we can today, but I know we will not speak to every question or pain or struggle that you're wrestling through. Also, I'm not a clinical psychologist or even a licensed counselor, but I am a pastor a student of scripture, but most importantly, a follower of Jesus who needs grace himself, just like everyone else. So 
with that, I want you to know, I don't come to the topic of, of anxiety from a distance. Some of you may know my story, and I've even shared it here, that I've been down in that dark valley of depression and anxiety and even suicidal thoughts. And my story includes counselors, a Christian psychiatrist, and even taking medications, which God used by his grace to help my body and mind get to a place where I could focus on the true healing my anxious soul needed and still needs to this day, the truth of the reality of God. But what do we mean by the word anxious? Well, it can mean different things to different people. So for today, I thought it would be best to define anxious the way that Jesus is using that word in our passage today. So it's the word that we translate anxious. So when Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, what does he mean? Well, that word of the Greek is the word merim now. See here. Which can mean, among other things, concern or care or worry or distress, specifically about the future. So it makes sense that we would translate that word, merim now, as anxious. It can actually have a positive meaning. Like when Paul tells the Corinthian church to have focused care or merim now about loving and serving one another, a good kind of anxiety for someone else's welfare. Like if you were anxious maybe to share good news with a friend. It's what Paul says of Timothy when telling the Philippian church that no one else has a genuine concern, a marrying now for them like Timothy does. It's a positive action from godly care and concern. It's a good anxiety. But that word can also have a negative meaning. An anxiety not rooted in truth or godly concern, but one actually rooted in lies, giving way to ungodly concerns about the future. Anxiety that doesn't drive us to trust God more, but actually to trust him less. That use of marrying now actually can mean a pulling apart inside of us. Instead of our hearts being whole and singularly concerned on God, his truth, and serving him, this anxiety is causing us to doubt God inside, pulling us away from God and his truth and away from the hope we need in the storms and trials of life. This anxiety, this Miriam now, is what many of us know all too intimately. Fearing our futures as if the God of the Bible doesn't really exist and his promises are not worth trusting. This anxiety, this ungodly Miriam now, that pulls us apart inside, this is what Jesus is speaking to and wants to free us from. So, my fellow anxious sheep, let's take a look together as Jesus speaks to us with Matthew 6, starting in verse 25, as he gives us the antidote to anxiety, starting with where we look. So follow along as I read verses 25 and 26. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value 
than they. So Jesus, full of compassion, turns to this uh, anxious crowd in front of him, undoubtedly pulled apart inside, and says, do not be anxious about your life, specifically about the provisions you need to live, food and drink and clothes to wear. But then I love how instantly he asks a question that we can read by very quickly, but it's actually really dripping with profound psychological insight and godly wisdom. He says to them, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Is not life more than food or clothing? Now, some of our Instagram accounts would disagree, right? We love taking pictures of food. Check out this meal. We love taking pictures of what we're wearing. Check out this new drip. Did I say that right, young people? Okay. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're fine. Don't worry about it. No, but seriously, what is Jesus saying to these crowds? The, the question by Jesus, again, is, is unsurprisingly profound because he's actually addressing the entire social spectrum and anxiety. Clearly, we all need to eat and we all need the protection of clothing. So worrying about those things, right, seems reasonable. But especially if you are struggling, if you are the poor, maybe living paycheck to paycheck, and there is an anxiety about the future because you don't know if that future has what you need it to have just to survive. I think that would cause any of us anxiety to know whether or not we'll have what we need to live. And undoubtedly embedded in that anxiety would be a shame. A shame that comes from not being good enough to take care of yourself or your family. A shame in not being blessed enough to have enough. A shame at being the bottom of the society, poor and anxious. And what does Jesus do? Shame them for their anxiety? Wag his finger at their lack of industriousness? No, he starts by reminding them of their worth, their value to him and to God, that it's not in their food or clothing, but in something much greater and much richer. richer. But he just sort of hints at the answer to the question. He just says, isn't life more than food or clothes? Yes, Jesus, but how? How is it more? Well, he doesn't answer it yet, but stay tuned. He will. But for the anxious, poor, and ashamed, Jesus starts by meeting their anxiety by speaking to their worth in God's eyes. But also, Jesus is speaking to the rich with the same question. Is not life more than food and clothes? Imagine being in the crowd. Maybe you got full plates and full bellies. You're dressed to the nines and all your fancy clothes at your hard work. And yeah, maybe blessing by God gave you. They are the very evidences that you must be doing something right. Look at what you have. And maybe, maybe it's also the root of your anxiety, your worry, the worth of the wealthy. Am, am, am I enough? Do I have enough? Have I proven myself yet? Have I achieved enough? When will that four-course meal or new shopping spree rid me of that angst and anxiety in my heart to be enough? And Jesus says to the rich, is not your life more than just food and clothing? Do you see that in one question, Jesus levels the playing field for everyone, that your life is not what you think it is. 
And your value is not what you think it is. And that's why you're anxious. But then to drive home uh, his point, he continues with this command. He says, look, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? It's like he's saying, lift up your eyes, up off your poverty, up off your pretentiousness, up on where you're finding your value, and look at birds around you. Learn from them. They have all they need. They are taken care of. Why? Because God, your heavenly Father, is real and is providing and powerful and is lovingly caring for his beloved creation. Did you see that? It doesn't say... Take notice that the birds eat. It says, your heavenly father feeds them. I think about when our kids were in high chairs, cute, but laughably helpless. So as parents, what do you do? So there, you take a little spoon, you scoop up something that they call baby food, which I don't know exactly what it is. You make little airplane noises, and you cram it in their little toothless mouth and they eat it, you feed them. And that's what you do because you care for your beloved, helpless, hopeless children. And God, our Father in heaven, is so intimately caring over every molecule of his creation that he feeds each and every bird. And then Jesus says, are you not more valuable than them? And the answer a million times over is, yes, child. Yes, you are infinitely more valuable to God than the birds. He has made you. He has put his image upon you. He knows the hairs in your head, knows your needs and desires. You live the life, the fullness of life that he has for you. Why should we not be anxious? Because God is real. He is over all things, and he calls us precious to him. In other words, when the anxiety in our hearts about the future, whether we'll have enough, when the fear tempts you to think God is not here, God is, does not care, God is not able, we stop and we look and remember the truth that when you look to God, you'll find him looking to you. He is here. He will take care of you because he loves you as his child. The start of understanding begins where we look, not to birds, but what the birds are pointing to, the reality of our loving, caring, powerful Heavenly Father. Because let's be honest, right? We spend our entire lives looking. We are constantly looking, looking at our problems, looking at our bank accounts, looking at our fears, looking at our imagined futures of assumed suffering, looking at real evil and danger in the world, and we are looking at our screens. The average person spends over two and a half hours a day on social media and over eight hours a day just consuming all sorts of digital media. We are constantly looking and constantly anxious. So Jesus is saying here that the, the truth to overcoming our anxiety 
is not to stop looking and to, to stick our fingers in our ears and close our eyes and deny reality. He's saying, you and I need vision correction. We are anxious, and the temptation is to look around for help, for answers, for peace, for distractions. But where do we look? Where should we look to the only sure and secure and all-encompassing peace in the storm? God, our Father in heaven, who loves us. So I ask you, where are you looking? Where are your eyes set now? Where are you searching for hope in the storm? Social media? Drinking in just constant cable news? Trying to dull the pain on endless streaming entertainment? Or maybe hope comes from the business guru or the self-help champion or the mirror or the scale or those social media notification alerts. Jesus says, look, look up. Not to birds, but to the God to who the birds point. So an example from our life, from my life that I've shared before, uh, is that when I was through a, a deep dive in my uh, anxiety and depression, and it seemed like when I was looking all around, all I could see was darkness. I, all I could see was my shame. I couldn't imagine a future with joy or peace. It was like looking just out at a future with no hope. Uh, and so what did I need? I needed to start to where I was looking. I needed to look, to look to truth, to look to God first. So what did my amazing, loving wife do for me? She helped me look by making me two big poster boards. One said, God is dot, dot, dot. And the other one said, I'm thankful for dot, dot, dot. And literally, she put them on the, the uh, dresser. So the first thing I woke up in the morning was these, and saw were, were these boards. And so we filled out those boards with post-it notes, scripture verses. God is, and I remember Matthew 28, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's, he's in control. And then he also says, and I will never leave you or forsake you. The entirety of Romans 8, you can look at that for hope on who God is and his promises over us to work all things out. And all these different scripture passages, and then I'm thankful for putting it, I'm thankful for my, my house, my kids, my family, this meal, my clothes, all the different things that I take for granted to remind that God is with me and caring for me and providing for me. So wh why, did I, why did she help me do that? Because the one of the most important steps for me in overcoming anxiety was vision correction. Where was I looking? Just like it wasn't looking at birds for the crowds, it wasn't about looking at boards for me, but it was looking about the truth those boards represented. It got my eyes, my heart back, on, back to the truth and away from the lies of anxiety. I needed to look and to start by looking at God. So when we're anxious, the first thing we need to do is look. Look at our Heavenly Father. But it's not just enough to look. As Jesus continues, we need to consider. So follow with me again in verse 27. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet, I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So Jesus continues with the crowd and says, First of all, when has worry or anxiety ever solved a problem? 
Never. So what can help? Well, similar to the birds, Jesus says to learn from the lilies in the field, reminding the crowd that not only do they, the lilies, the flowers, not toil or work for their glory, but that they bear, themsel- uh, bear on themselves a glory by the hand of God that no human achievement could ever compare with. Again, leveling the playing field. Poor, your worth is not in your things or your outward beauty. Rich, the greatest person you could ever think of, Solomon and all his incalculable riches and splendor, the wildflowers on the side of the highway are more impressive to God Almighty. But notice that Jesus doesn't say, look at the flowers, or, like he did with the birds. He says what? Consider. It's a different word. And that word means careful observation to pull out all the meaning, to dwell on, to think deeply, to meditate on, consider. So why consider? Well, I think Jesus is saying to truly be able to stand strong against the winds and waves of this world, to be people set free from anxiety, to not be pulled apart inside, but whole and steady. It takes more than just a surface level understanding of the reality of God. It takes a concentrated purposeful, intentional dwelling, considering a rooting of our lives in God's truth. Consider what trees still stand after the fierce storms, the ones with deep, strong roots. What keeps a docked ship from drifting out into aimless ocean currents, a strong anchor. And what helps an anxious heart face and overcome a heavy world, one that's deeply rooted in the truth of God and considers him. When tragedy hits, when that loved one is suddenly taken, when that job is unexpectedly lost, when that rejection letter comes, the divorce papers are served, that diagnosis comes back, or any other tragedy hits you, what will keep the darkness from overtaking you? It's whatever you've been rooting yourself into whatever you've been building your life on, whatever you've been considering. Again, kind of back to my story. So during that season where Aaron helped me kind of look away from myself and my fear and look to God, I also had to practice considering deep down the implications of God's truth in my life. My anxiety actually hit a few months before COVID. So nothing helps overcome deep anxiety and depression like adding a pandemic to the mix. So that was good. That was helpful. But as we were all working from home, I would often use my lunch break to take walks around my neighborhood. And one of the things I would do would be to step out of my front door. And as I walked, I would pray to God in my anxiety and fear through the story of Scripture. Starting in Genesis, I would talk to God about his story, specifically highlighting the times uh, when God's people felt lost, anxious, overwhelmed, and in despair. And then I would recall how God lovingly and powerfully rescued them. And I would mentally and prayerfully go through the Old Testament, then through the New Testament and the birth of the church, all considering dwelling on the reality of God and his story. And I'd, I'd pull that story further into my own life, and then our family story together, remembering those times in our lives when we felt lost, 
abandoned or scared. And to look back and see that God had not only not left me during those times, but he had been working. Working a good I didn't always see or feel at the time. But God's story, from Genesis all the way up to that lunch break, <laughs> I needed to just not just look at God, but to consider and dwell upon him. And it was in that considering, that dwelling and going from just looking at God to meditating on the truth and the implications of God in my life, that my anxiety would start to melt away. That pulled apart heart would start to come together, even for a little while. His truth taking root and his truth conquering the lies of anxiety. The psalmist puts it this way on the importance of knowing and dwelling and considering God saying, I have stored up your word where? In my heart. Why? That I might not sin against you. I'm storing it up there. I'm storing it up there. The apostle Paul would say it this way. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on this earth. Set, be intentional, be purposeful to dwell and meditate and consider the realities of God. He would say it again in Colossians by saying this, let the word of God or let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It doesn't say let the word of Christ stop by. Let the word of Christ, you know, pass by you and drive and wave from the street. He says, no, bring it in. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Consider. When anxiety hits, where does your heart go? Where does your mind go? Do you sit and consider and dwell on the fears, the what-ifs, or the fading wisdom and promises of this world? Or do you consider, meditate, plunge yourself into the pool of God's truth, God's word, God's promises for you? And friends, you can't wait for the storm to come to start doing that. It's now. What are we doing now to store up that word in our hearts, to set our minds on that word, to let that word begin to dwell in us? What are we doing now? Not just looking to God, but considering the implications and the reality of rooting ourselves in him. Consider. And finally, Jesus says, seek. So let's pick back up in verse 31. Jesus goes, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." So you remember a little earlier in this section where Jesus said, is life not more than food uh, or the body more than clothing? Talking about that life and that value that we all have. Well, what is that life? What is the more that Jesus was talking about? Well, he answers it here. If anxiety is a pulled apart heart, tempted to disbelieve and distrust God, then what Jesus wants to create in us is a whole heart freed from the chains of anxiety not pulled apart by the lies of this world, but singularly devoted to the truth of his kingdom. By looking to God, 
fixing our eyes on him above the sights and screens and noise of this anxiety-written world, to consider him, to root our hearts and minds in the depths and truths and implications of who God is and his promises for us, to look and to consider God as he melts away our anxiety leads us to a wholehearted end, a life of single purpose, to seek him with all that we are. The enemy has a clear goal in keeping us anxious. If he can keep our eyes looking to something else but God, he'll keep our minds considering something else but God, and our hearts will put our hope in something else but God, and so we'll live for something else than God. Our hearts pulled apart. But Jesus, loving, powerful, compassionate, healing Jesus, comes into our anxiety and says, but when you look to God alone, consider the truth of God alone deep down and run with your heart and anxieties to God alone, he takes that pulled apart heart, brings it back together to start and living for God alone, seeking him, devoted to him, life in him, resting in him, pursuing him, knowing him. And Jesus says, when you seek that, all the other things will fall into place. Seek first the kingdom. So Jesus kind of puts this point into practice actually a little later in the gospels. When he goes to the home of Mary and Martha, you may be familiar with the story in Luke 10. It's a few verses, so I'll put it up here where he says this to, to them. Sorry. This one. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house, and she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve? Tell her then to help me. By the way, if you find yourself telling Jesus what to do, you've already got doing it wrong, okay? Like, don't do it. She says, tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious. Marry now. Troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Martha, you're being pulled apart, busy and distracted, You're missing what's right in front of you. The only thing, not just the main thing, the only thing. One thing is necessary. Me, look to me. Consider me, seek me, rest in me. King David wrote that if he had only one wish that he could ask the Lord to grant him, it would be this. One thing I have asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and what? to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing, to look, to consider the greatness of who you are, God. And the Apostle Paul, the same sentiment would put it this way. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Martha, you're pulled apart. There's one thing you need 
it's me. David, I don't want to be pulled apart. The one thing I want is to be concentrated on you, God. Paul saying, I don't want to be pulled apart. I consider everything else a loss compared to the one thing of knowing you. And Jesus in Matthew 6 tells us, don't be anxious, but seek the one thing. Me and my kingdom and my righteousness and trust that when you do that, I'll take care of everything else. In other words, Jesus is saying, let me be your good Mary now. Let me be what you're anxious about. So we are an anxious people. And to be honest, counseling may help, biblical counseling. Medications may help. They, they helped me. They did. But those are only a means to what we truly need, to look, to consider, and seek Jesus. The ultimate reason we don't have to be anxious, hear this, is because the very compassionate shepherd Jesus who taught on that hillside to the crowd of broken people went to another hillside to be broken himself for the people. He took the hill of Calvary, nailed to a cross, and on that cross poured out upon him was every reason for us to be anxious. If we're anxious about our sin and not being enough for God and not being worthy, Jesus paid the fullness of our sin on the cross. If we're worried about the fears and dangers and brokenness of the world, Jesus uh, completed the curse of the cross. He undid the curse on the cross, suffering fullness for our sins, undoing the curse of sin and death, inaugurating a world that will come in where anxiety and fear will melt away in the light of his glorious presence. The reason that we can have an antidote to anxiety is because Jesus Christ went up that hill and conquered fear, death, and everything evil in this world by his body, his death, and atonement on the cross for us. And how do we know? How can we rest assured that one day everything that we're afraid of, every fear that we have, everything that melts us in anxiety will be taken away? It's because Jesus didn't stay dead. But he came out of that tomb three days later, and that empty tomb screams to us that Jesus won that he is our victory, that everything that we would have anxiety over sits under his conquering feet, and that one day when he comes back and we look at him in the light of his glory, of his resurrected eyes to us, when we look to him and we consider him and we finally fully seek him, anxiety and fear and worry will be no more. And we can live in that today the ultimate hope of our anxiety is Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. So I want to ask you this morning, where do you look? Where do you consider? What are you seeking? When that anxiety and fear bubbles up, where do you run? Let's look to Jesus. Consider the work that he's accomplished for us in his life, death, and resurrection, and let's run and seek after him with an unpulled apart, undivided heart, knowing that one day when he returns, we'll join him in glory and victory and the fullness of joy in his presence. I'll end with these words. Jesus said to us, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world, you will have tribulations, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Let's pray. Jesus, your promise, even in that verse, reminds us that we will have trouble in this world. We will have things that come to us that bring us stress, sorrow, despair, and there'll be things that tempt us to go into an ungodly anxiety where we're tempted not to trust in your goodness and your sovereignty and your provision over us. Lord, I pray that we would turn to you in those moments. We would look to our Heavenly Father who loves us. We would consider the reality of who you are and your sovereign love over us, and we would seek you with our whole heart. And Lord, we would remember that Jesus on the cross paid the full price of our sin and our condemnation, that undid the curse of the brokenness and evil of this world, and one day we will be with him in glory and paradise and joy in his presence forevermore. And Lord, that that truth would melt away our anxiety. Lord, whatever we're anxious with, may we cast it upon you now. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I can't think of a better way to seek the kingdom in this moment than to take communion together. And uh, those that are serving communion, you can go ahead and go to your tables. The way that we do communion here, by the way, in just a minute, I'll dismiss you. And as you feel led, take a moment. Whenever you're ready, you can go to the tables, get the elements, come back to your seat, and then we will take it all together. But as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want to encourage you. Peter tells, uh, tells us in his letter, cast all your anxieties on him, on Jesus. Why? Because he cares for you. Whatever you're wrestling with right now, anxiety of shame, anxiety of trying to perform, anxiety about the future, anxiety about real things, about hurts you're walking through or people you love, Jesus is big enough to take them. Give them to him today. But I would ask this. If you've never, never fully given yourself to Jesus, you don't know. You don't know if you truly know him or you walk in the fullness of salvation. And give yourself to Jesus first now before your anxieties. Jesus, I give you my sin. I give you my shame. I give you my guilt. Lord, you paid for it on the cross. You rose again for my new life. Give it to him today. So sit there, and as you consider, spend some time with God. Consider the truth of who he is. And when you're ready, you can excuse yourself to go get elements. And then again, we'll all take it together. So meet with the Lord now.